<laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Charles. I'm an alcoholic. And it certainly is a real pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, you know, I go to a lot of meetings and people say they're and or something. So for you andas, I'll say I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to mood-altering women, and I'm also hooked on phonics. I don't know what that means, but anyway, I am. <clears throat> you know, I'm an old Kentucky boy. I was raised up in uh, Madisonville, Kentucky, a whole bunch of years ago. Uh, somebody asked me today how old I was on the way over here. I think I said I, I don't. I'm, I can remember when Baskin Robbins just had two flavors, so it's, it's been a while. But uh, I'm from Madisonville, Kentucky, originally. Moved down to Tennessee in 1963 and uh, raised a family down there. My sobriety date is uh, June 22nd, 1984. So I'm coming up on 12, uh, 12 years this year. I uh, graduated from uh, Madisonville High School in Western Kentucky, and <clears throat> you don't have to applaud that. <laughs> and I was thinking about high school... The other day when I was uh, in a little restaurant down in Murfreesboro, they have hamburger joints that also serve beer and whiskey and what have you. But there was a little joint down there that uh, hardly anyone goes to. It's not a real popular spot. It's called Buckets. And uh, really, I didn't name it. And the bartender there had been serving whiskey to these two guys who had been sitting in there all day. And they hadn't said a word to each other. And somewhere up around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, one of them looked over at the other one and said, Where'd you go to high school? And he said, Bell Bottom. That's a little town down there. No, Bell Buckle. I'm sorry. He said, Bell Buckle. He said, Well, kiss my butt. I went to school Bell Buckle. He said, Give us another drink over here. And they had another drink. A few minutes, he looked over at this guy, and he again, he said, What year did you graduate down there at Bell Buckle? I graduated in 54. He said, Well, kiss my rusty butt. I graduated in 54 down at Bell Buckle. Give us another drink. And they had him another little drink, and finally he looked over and he said, when you graduated down there at Bell Buckle, who was your homeroom teacher? And he said, that would have been Miss Adams. Well, kiss my rusty butt. Miss Adams was my homeroom teacher. Give us another drink. And as the bartender started back to the table, the phone rang. And he picked up the phone and answered it, and it was his wife. And she said, honey, is everything okay down there? And he said, oh, yeah, it's been real slow today. Nobody here but the Johnson twins and me, and they're getting drunk again. <laughs> I didn't hear you, Liz. Now, that gives you some idea about where I'm from down in Murfreesboro. But down at <clears throat> Murfreesboro is real cultured compared to back home where I was from. 
Uh, I was from a little old town. Uh, well, if you go to Madisonville and go west about six miles past the resume speed sign, there's where I lived. And it was between Madisonville and Nebo. And uh, my uncle was the only alcoholic that I ever knew. He was an alcoholic dairy farmer. And uh, he was pretty famous around that part of the country. He he got drunk one day and milked two Jehovah Witnesses come up there at the house. I guess there was a lesson to be learned there somewhere. But uh, I owe my life to this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I'm pretty much a typical drunk, I guess. I've uh, I've been married four times. I've been bank- bankrupt once. I've been kicked out of most of the schools I was ever in. I've been arrested on charges from DUI to aggravated assault. So I guess that makes me pretty average. Uh, that would raise eyebrows in some circles, but I notice I look out across there, everybody's going. I, I experienced that one day in my home group. I was standing there and some guy was talking about how it felt to throw up through your nose and everybody's going. Where else could you find a common bond like that? (laughs) You know, I started drinking when I was in uh, junior high school. I can remember taking my school lunch money and paying it to to uh, giving it to a fellow for whiskey. He was bringing stealing whiskey from his daddy, and he was bringing it to me in an Alka-Seltzer bottle. I don't know if you all remember them old long skinny Alka-Seltzer bottles, but that's what I was buying my whiskey in. And evidently he was putting water back in his dad's bottle. And uh, that's what I did with my lunch money. And I I liked the way it made me feel. Uh, I could get a buzz pretty good off of an Alka-Seltzer bottle full of bourbon at uh, 12, 13 years old, I guess I was, about 13. Uh, now, I had drank earlier than that, but uh, I never did have to pay for it until I was in junior high school. And uh, it certainly uh, didn't cause many problems then. All through high school, I, I drank every chance I got. Into college, it started making a little bit of trouble for me. I left uh, Kentucky and went down to Austin P. State College in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, where they uh, promptly kicked me out for drinking and bringing liquor into the basketball players, which wasn't so bad, except I was the basketball manager. And... Uh, so they, uh, their agenda and mine clashed, and uh, so they kicked me out of school. And that really, I think, was the first time I suffered any consequences from my drinking. Uh, I took a summer job selling magazines from door to door, and uh, was in a little town called Diamond, Kentucky. It's a suburb of Clay. <laughs> For you who don't know where Diamond is. And... Uh, real pretty girl come to the door and I immediately fell in heat love (laughs) and uh, this was on August the 1st 1963 and on August 17th 1963 me and that woman had a church wedding (laughs) swear to God 17 days from the time I first laid eyes on her till we had a church wedding. 
And that's still some kind of record in diamond. And people said, well, it ain't going to work. And that's right. But you know, at the time, I didn't see anything wrong with that. And I look back now and I think that may have been some impulsive behavior. And I understand that's one of the personality traits us alcoholics may have. But she and I got married and we had two little uh, children, uh, both who are members in good standing of this fellowship today. I guess that takes you by surprise. And uh, the woman I married, we, we divorced after uh, ten years of marriage. And a lot of it had to do with my drinking. Most of it had to do with the fact that the only thing we had in common was two kids in a bed. But uh, we went our separate ways. And I'll be darned if my kids didn't talk me into remarrying that woman. <laughs> We'd been divorced a year, and I got my kids every other weekend, and they just insisted they needed their family back together. So I started my big courtship. Let me tell you, it took more than 17 days the second time. But I did get it done, and, and we, we remarried. We went down and got married in the courthouse, and the kids were happy, and, and she was happy, and, and I was for a little while. But I want you to know that us alcoholics have willpower. I made that marriage last for five more years, and uh, we got divorced again. That's two for you all who are keeping score. I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, <clears throat> Working, I was in the tool and die business, and uh, I was doing sales work at the time. And I took one of my customers in to drink lunch one day at a little place called the Red Lantern, and they served beer and hamburgers. And uh, I didn't like their hamburgers, so this fellow named Doyle, he and I went down there, and, and the first time I went in, I saw this redheaded waitress, and again, I fell in love. And I asked him who she was. And he said, well, you might as well forget this girl because she's taken. I said, well, you mean she's taken? He said, well, she has a sugar daddy. I accepted that as a challenge. <laughs> We're that way, aren't we? Tell me I can't have something... I went after her like a freight train. I started coming in that place every day. I'd have lunch in there, I'd drink my lunch and play pinball or something, and I'll, I'll go over her, you know. And uh, after about two weeks of that, I asked her for a date, and she wouldn't go out with me. She told me that she had a boyfriend. And I patiently waited, and I decided this beer wasn't doing enough. So I started bringing in a half gallon, which I, I prefer to buy liquor in a half gallon. It saves a lot of time, and uh, you don't have as many receipts to mess with at the end of the year if you're on a few guys that travel, you know what I'm talking about. So I kept this half gallon under the counter, and I came back uh, maybe a couple of weeks later, and I was feeling real good on my, my uh, bourbon that I kept under the counter, and I had my nerve up. And I asked her again. And lo and behold, her and her sugar daddy were having a spat. Talk about good timing. She agreed to go with me to a football game. Well, I really cared a lot about high school football in Chattanooga. 
I lived up in Cookville, Tennessee at the time in the, in the mountains up there down by Center Hill Lake. And I didn't even know anybody on the team, but I agreed to go just to be with her because she was beautiful. I'm not kidding. Well, this is the night that I knew for sure that I wanted to marry her. Because we got to that ball game and we had our bottles stuffed in our pockets. She could drink with me, drink for drink. She could cuss, she could swear, she could threaten. I was totally impressed because I'd been married. I'd been married to a woman who raised hell with me for those very traits. And I just stood there in bewilderment watching her as she would shoot birds at these umpires out on the field and make reference to their mother and I don't know what all. And I just stood there bewildered. And she, in her excitement, oh, I forgot to tell you, it was cold. It was cold that night and it was raining with a little bit of snow mixed in it. You know how them floodlights are over a ball field at night. She got the carrying her on there and knocked me off in bleachers. We was up next to the top. Y'all ever watch, uh, let's make a deal, that Plinko game? Liz just got it. I fell down in amongst them, them bleachers like that Plinko chip on, on let's make a deal and I was leaving pieces of eyebrow and knuckles all over us. And I hit the bottom. I was hurting. And I looked up into those bright lights and that snow and rain coming down and she was still up there raising hell, didn't even know I was gone. I said, there's the woman for me. I fell in love right then and there. Well, I climbed up out of them bleachers and I just attached myself to her, and I mean, I stayed close until she agreed to marry me. And uh, we got married in my office back up in Cookville, and we moved down to my little place on the lake. And, and uh, it was real romantic. We just holed up down there and stayed drunk for about two months. And uh, it was in the in the winter time. We got married on New Year's Eve, and and we'd get out there in the snow drunk and make these X-rated snow people. And uh, I've got pictures. You'd be surprised what you can do with pine needles. And uh, we were we were creative. Now you know I'm telling you all this that I used to have fun drinking. It wasn't always misery and hell for me when I drank. I had fun. She and I had fun together. It was it was the center of our lives it was the centerpiece of, of our lives and we would travel together and we had a bar in the back seat and we've done some wild and crazy things I re- do y'all remember a comedian that used to do a routine about oh you doesn't have to call me Johnson remember that guy well she hated him and we were driving up the road one day on the way to Chicago I was going up there for a seminar and her doctor's name was Dr. Johnson and I had been aggravating her, and I said, when are you going back to the doctor, your gynecologist? She said, oh, why? And I said, what, what's his name? And she said, Johnson. And I go, oh, you didn't have to call him Johnson. 
And she just sat there and looked at me like I was a fool, you know. And after a while, I said something. We was talking. I said, what's the name of that company that makes Band-Aids? And she said, Johnson & Johnson. I go, oh, you didn't have to call him Johnson. Well, now, we're both pretty plastered driving up the road 75 miles an hour. And she's got on uh, one of these shirts that snaps in the front. And she said, you say that one more time, and I'm going to pull my clothes off right here in this car. I said, oh, you didn't have to say you're going to pull your clothes off. She popped that thing, boy, just like that. And she's endowed. And trucks just started running off the road. No, it was no kidding. I saw dust flying. I looked in the windshield. And she did. She pulled that thing off and rode right up the interstate, just as bare chested as the day she was born. Now, I was a lot like her. I don't know if any of y'all relate to this, but I get drinking a little bit. I like getting naked. <laughs> y'all do that? Get naked and ride on the hood of a car. That was my. <laughs> Two of my favorite things. And guns, we like guns. We were staying in Chattanooga one time at a, a place called the King's Lodge, and as you go up the interstate I-24 over Missionary Ridge, there's a big hotel right there, and we would get the end room. It was our favorite room because it, it overlooked the city, and, and right onto the interstate, the road turned right, right in front of the room, and we would get out there on that balcony naked, in the wintertime and toast them trucks coming up that hill, you know. Now, here's what's funny about that. I thought I was impressing them. You don't impress anybody when it's about 30 degrees outside and you're naked. But see, I had that, that overcoat on, and we enjoyed doing stuff like that. We'd stand out there and laugh, and we had fun. And we were just two crazy people in love, acting stupid. And uh, one day it started getting bad, though. Uh, jealousy set in for no particular reason. I mean, just out of the blue. I mean, suspicions and, and the arguments started to get a little bit longer. And I found out after I got sober that this disease that I have is progressive. And you know, I can look back now and see the progression of my disease as it caused my relationship to her to deteriorate. And of course, we got double speed because she's a good member of this fellowship today, too. So we accelerated twice as fast downhill in our relationship. Our arguments got louder. They got more intense. We got to the point where we thought we needed guns to get each other's attention. <laughs> and of course, I always thought it was just her that had a problem. I never will forget one night, and we were in Chattanooga, we were renting an apartment. I'd sold out my half of a business, and I had a little bit of money, so I decided to just retire and drink. I took up drinking full time. And... Uh, one night we got into an argument about something. I think she had a dream that I slept with her sister or something, is what started it. And 
I was trying to explain it to her, and she wouldn't listen to me, so I went and got my gun. And it was a three fifty seven Magnum, which is a pretty powerful handgun, especially if you're looking at it from the other side. And, and boy, I dropped the hammer back on that and stuck that gun up in her face, and I said, you're going to listen to what i got to say. So I held her hostage for the next few hours, and I made her sit down and shut up and not say a word until I had everything out of me that I wanted to say. She was sitting on the couch next to the patio doors, and something distracted me. I don't know what it was. It was a phone or something. I was drunk. Who knows what it was? But I took my eyes off of her, and in that split second, she was up off that couch, run right through them patio doors, and they were closed, took the drapes, the glass, the screen, and everything. Again, it was wintertime and cold. She went screaming off down that hillside through the parking lot, and I remember going to the door and listening to her just as her voice faded out. I thought, that is the craziest damn thing I've ever seen in my life. She's not right. There was blood out there where she had waded through broken glass, and my biggest concern was I had to stay in that cold apartment that night with no glass in the door. And uh, eventually the police came back and showed up, and we had our little bout with them. I threatened to whip them. They could whip me. And uh, it was just that time. If you, if you have this disease and you're married to a redhead, you probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Now, I'm not prejudiced against redheads. I told, I told this one right here earlier tonight. Somebody asked me when I was younger, said, you ever slept with a brunette? I said, I've slept with a lot of brunettes. He said, blondes? I said, no telling how many. He said, you ever slept with a redhead? And I said, not a wink. <laughs> you all are a happy bunch, aren't you? I like being around happy alcoholics. You ever go into one of those meetings and there's some old fart sitting next to the wall, his face is about this long, he looks like a looks like a jackass could eat oats out of a two inch water pipe, you know. And he says, If you want what we've got Who in the world wants that? I believe in celebrating life in my sobriety, so I like to have a little bit of fun along the way. Well, I told you about all the fun Mary Kay and I, that was her name, Mary Kay, and I had drinking. And, and then it started going to hell in a handbasket pretty soon. And you know, we ended up getting a divorce after five years of combination of bliss and living hell. Uh, during that period of time, I got custody of my children. She got hers. It was just a nightmare. And, of course, they were doing their thing. And I look back now, and I don't really know how any of us lived through it. But we got a divorce. I'd moved to Nashville, took a geographic cure. And uh, I decided that I couldn't lift that crazy woman any longer. So I packed up my stuff and left and Went down to Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. <clears throat> I know you know where that is. And uh, I left a few things that I couldn't carry with me when I left. And so after about a week, I went back to get 
what few remaining articles of clothing, and I had this one real nice oil painting that I wanted to get, so I took a company truck and went back. Of course, I stopped at the liquor store on the way, and when I went to the liquor store, I backed in. I done told you I bought half gallons, but I bought them by the case. And uh, so I had to stop and load up on a little bit of booze, and I backed that truck in there, and I had a case of half gallons and and had me a drink in my hand. If I had my pants on, I was drinking usually. And uh, went up there to get my underwear or whatever and my my painting. And I went in, and she was already drunk. It was about 11 No, it was in the afternoon. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as I recall. And uh, she was unkempt and uh, lazing around the house, didn't favor anything I'd ever seen. And I told her I couldn't get my stuff. Well, we went back in the bedroom, and she followed me, and I had a leather suitcase in my hand. And she went on around the other side of the bed, and she said, what are you going to do? And I told her, I said, well, it don't matter, because I'm just going to put a lot of real estate between me and you. She come around that bed then. She went around and got a pair of those Singer sewing machine scissors. Big ones. <laughs> and she come around that bed at me and she said, Well, if I can't have you, nobody can. Now, folks, I'm not that good a catch. She stabbed at me with those scissors. And I put that suitcase up. And I've still got that suitcase, that hole in it. But now, I went into a blackout at that point. Now, I, I guess a lot of alcoholics like me. I went from, I didn't get mad, I just went into rage. That's the way I was. I didn't bother with angry. Angry is a sissy word. I, <laughs> I never got angry in my life. I get mad, pissed, or whatever, but I never got angry. And I went into a rage blackout because I do not to this day remember what happened next. But when I came out of that blackout, she was laying in a pool of blood in the floor. Now, folks, that scared me to death. I started getting sober real quick. My adrenaline started pumping through me, and I thought, my God, I've killed her. I looked real close to see if I could see her breathing, and, and I noticed her chest rising a little bit, and the blood was gushing out of her nose. I, evidently, I had hit her and knocked her out. And to this day, I swear to you, that is the first and last time I ever hit a woman. And I have no recollection of doing that. And I kept asking her, what happened to you? What happened to you? She said, you knocked me out. And I kept denying it. Well... I went and got rags, and I got her all cleaned up, and I got her in bed up out of the floor, and I mopped the blood up out of the carpet, and her nose was swollen up. I mean, it looked terrible. And I felt so bad. Us alcoholics usually do that, don't we? We feel remorse when we screw up and promise never to do it again, and, and I felt real bad. I can't tell you how bad I felt. I put ice on her nose, and I sat down on the bed beside her, and we started talking, and next thing you know, she asked me to spend the night. And <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I didn't stay forever. I just stayed that night. 
And she and I made love that night with her broken nose. That's kind of pathetic, isn't it? Done knocked this woman out and broke her nose and then sleep with her. And it seemed perfectly all right. I never did anything that didn't seem perfectly all right. Did you? At the time. Well, I got up the next day and I left. And uh, I went on back to Lawrenceburg and I didn't see her again for a long time. And I heard that she had, we got divorced, and I heard that she had got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, well, that's real good because the psychiatrist and the abuse and all the other things couldn't get her sober. And God knows she needs a little help. I was in Chattanooga one night about a year later, and I'd been to a party, and boy, was I smashed. I'd been drinking George Dickel straight all night, and I couldn't see anything two eyes open I was driving like this and I was going up the road and I looked up to this Bojangles restaurant on the side of the road and I knew she worked for Bojangles she was a manager and I saw that little old car of hers that I bought and paid for I take that back I didn't pay for all of it she paid for part of it and uh, but uh, I recognized the car and I pulled in there and went up to the drive-in window and I asked for the manager and they said, well, she's not here. She's out in the storage room or something. I said, well, page her. So I just sat right there and she came out of that storage room and come running across the parking lot and run up to the car window and I had the window down and she reached in and kissed me smack dab in the mouth. I don't mean on the mouth. I mean in the mouth. I was drunker than a cooter, and she was sober as a judge. And she asked me to park the car and come in and wait for her to get that place closed down. And so I did, and I don't know why. I should have been scared to death, this woman. You know, she tried to kill me last time I tangled with her. And by the way, I, I did have to go to court over that. That's a felony. Did you know that? Aggravated assault. That's a felony. I got to tell you about that. That's funny. We got to court. The police came down to Lawrenceburg and arrested me and took me back up to Nashville and put me in jail. And uh, I was the only one in my holding cell without tattoos, and that's kind of intimidating. But we went into that court. And she showed up, and she came up to me, and she said, I want you to know I'm not going to press charges against you. And I said, well, that's right decent of you, considering you tried to stab me. And I said, I don't even remember what I did. She said, well, don't discuss it. I'm dropping the charges. I said, well, you better go up and talk to that district attorney, because he looks like he's real serious about this. And she went up and told him, she said, I don't want to press charges against this man. And he looked at her and said, didn't he... Uh, break your nose, aren't these pictures of you? And he had pictures that she went and had made. And she said, yeah. He said, well, why do you want to drop charges? She said, well, ever since he broke my nose, I've quit snoring. <laughs> Is that not a good alcoholic for you? We can rationalize and justify anything in the world. So help me God, that's what she told that judge. And... And he said, that's as good a reason as I've ever heard. So he just 
we had to pay court costs and went our separate ways. And then I didn't see her until that, that night down at Bojangles. And you know, I went, I recall going in. I was really drunk that night. And I have very little recall about what happened except that I know I followed her home. I don't remember the drive home and I don't remember walking up the steps to her apartment. But I tell you what I do remember. I remember waking up the next morning in a very familiar smelling bed. She wore Chanel. I liked it. I looked around and realized where I was, and I was scared to death. I was looking for my clothes. I want to get out of there. I was in a very vulnerable position as far as I was concerned. I know she didn't have those scissors because I took those and threw them away. She might have bought some more. She came diddy-bopping into the bedroom. She had a tray, and she had the newspaper, Sunday morning paper, and she had some orange juice and some coffee. And, man, I never saw her look so good. She wasn't shaking. Her eyes were clear. And she sat down there on the side of the bed with me, and she gave me a little juice and a little coffee and let me try to focus in on the headlines of the paper. And then she sat down beside me on the bed. And she shared with me about getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. She talked about a sponsor. She talked about God. She she had a clear look in her eyes that I hadn't seen in a long, long time. And you know, I kept looking into those eyes as deep as I could to see if there was some devious plot here or something. I, I wanted to see if she was real, legitimate. And all I could see was was happiness. This woman was happy. She was sober. And I stayed there with her the rest of the most of the day and uh, that afternoon I, I got in my car to go back home, back to Lawrenceburg, which was about a, a two hour drive and and all the way back, I thought, well, I think that's wonderful. She's got sober because God knows that crazy bitch needed something. And that's just the way I felt about it. But you see, a seed had been planted. I didn't know it. Maybe she did, but I didn't. I had been 12-stepped. And I went back, and we started calling each other. And finally, after a little while, she uh, invited me to Chattanooga to see her get a... Uh, a medallion, a chip. She was getting a six-month chip. See, when she 12-stepped me, she was only three months sober. So don't think you have to wait till you get 10 years 12-step somebody. She did it at three three months. I went back down and watched her get her little chip for six months, and then time flew by pretty quick. She invited me back to see her get a nine-month chip. So I drove back to Chattanooga, and they have a little yalla chip. They call it a sunshine chip. And they had a speaker that night. And I was sitting in the back of the room with her, and this speaker got up and started talking about me. I was getting a little hot under the collar. I said, this, this is only the second time I've come to one of these damn meetings and they're already talking about me. I thought sure that she had got with this guy and told him all the stuff I've been doing and he got changed the names to protect the innocent or the guilty and was up there telling about me. And I was really getting upset until he finally got into it enough where I, 
I became convinced he was talking about himself. And you know I made the connection. That moment of clarity, that moment of sanity was given me. And I went in there about half plastered that night. I did stay sober a little bit, just out of respect for her. But I did have a moment of, of sanity, and I made the connection between my behavior, my problems, and alcohol through that speaker. There was an old fellow named Earl got up at the end of the meeting, and he offered a desire chip for anyone that had a desire for a new way of life. And, you know, I, I don't even know why I did it, but it was like an invisible force. It just lifted me out of that chair, and I went up that aisle to get that chip. And I got it, and the old man hugged me, and he told me to keep coming back. And I walked back to my seat looking at that chip, and I was thinking, what in the hell did I get this for? <laughs> I can't stay sober. I can't quit drinking. I've tried before, and I couldn't do it. I drank because I had to, not because I wanted to at this point. And I looked at that chip. And I was thinking, this is going to be a real embarrassment when I get drunk. And I think shame is probably what kept me from taking that first drink for a while. But when I walked back to the seat, you know, people were clapping. These people knew me. And she was crying, and her sister and her husband were sitting there crying. They had both got sober as a result of her twelfth step. And I just couldn't get over the emotional that I felt in that room. And uh, so, you know, they tell you when you get sober, don't make any major changes in your life for, for about a year. So two days later, we moved in with each other. <laughs> Three months or four months later, we got married again. <clears throat> you notice I give them all a second chance. I'm good that way. And I started into a wonderful journey called Sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we moved to Columbia, Tennessee. I took a job with a company over there as a sales manager for a machine tool company. And uh, Life was really good. I bought a farm. I didn't have any animals, but I had a tractor, and I like to get out on that tractor and ride around, kill weeds with it. <laughs> But I was sure happy. And you know, I had lost everything when we first moved over there, but, but I, I, fortunately I was given a lot of opportunities, and I didn't earn them. I mean, I was literally given opportunities, gifts from heaven, I call them. And within a year, I had probably recouped most of my losses. It was absolutely astonishing. Each day I wake up and I say, I just can't hardly wait to see what God's got in store for me today. And it seemed like the least I would do, the less I'd do, the more results I'd get. I started uh, going to a little group there in Columbia, and I got me a sponsor. He was a, he was a Yankee from New Jersey. He had a whiny voice. I couldn't stand him. So I got him for a sponsor. I figured that's what I needed. His name was George, and George really helped me. He helped me in the steps. Uh, he, his best message, though, was the way he lived. And uh, George saved my life once. Uh, I figure he did. I, 
I had been sober, I guess maybe about 10 or 11 months when I found out my daughter had been raped. And she was only 14 years old. And the problem was, I knew who did it. Now there's a hell of a choice. So I got my old 357 Magnum out. And I went toward Nashville. And I knew I had to stop at the liquor store. I knew I couldn't do what I had to do sober. And just so happened I had to go right by George's house. And I thought, well, what I better do is go in here and tell him what I'm going to do so they can make all necessary arrangements. I pulled up in the yard, and George is out there with one of them rototillers. I pulled up, and he turned it off. I said, George, I'm going to go kill a man. Well, get out of the car and come on in. I said, George, I don't want to come in. I, I want you to know that I'm upset. My daughter's been raped. I know who did it, and I'm killing the SOB. Well, he'll still be there after a while. Let's have a ham sandwich and talk about it. <laughs> I don't think George grasped the seriousness of this. <laughs> but I went in, and you know, lo and behold... Uh, we hadn't been sitting there too long at all till God joined us. And uh, all that anger and hostility faded away. And, and uh, I thank George today for the counseling that I got. George is dead now. Uh, after George died, he was a GSR. And after he died, they asked me to take over and fill out his job, uh, complete his term. I didn't have enough experience, I didn't think, but... I jumped right in there and volunteered to do it, which is probably the best thing that happened to me, because I'm going to be honest with you, I was pretty darn bored with sobriety about that time. You know, I prayed for serenity and gotten it and didn't know what to do with it. I like living on the cutting edge. I to come over to my house. I like being on the 11 o'clock news. I didn't know I liked it, but I did. I liked that excitement. So, uh, service work is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I finished up that term as a GSR, and, and uh, I really got into going to the jails and prisons. There was a prison over uh, close to a little town called Bucksnort. <laughs> Only Tennessee. Right down the road from Bucksnort. And there's a state prison there, the uh, Turney Center and Farm. They don't do a lot of farming. And I would go over there each Thursday night and carry meeting into that prison. And let me tell you what, I left there with such an attitude of gratitude that you could not believe. I would get on a spiritual high every Thursday night that was hard to believe. And so I made a startling discovery. You know, when I first got sober, I had that pink cloud that I rode around on. And I felt like, once again, I was bulletproof. Nothing could ever hurt me again. That I had found the secret to life. Of course, one day I woke up and there life was throwing shit balls at me with both hands. <laughs> but for a while, it was real nice. 
And uh, I found out that you can get that pink cloud anytime you want it. You see, the first one's free. You've got to earn the rest of them. And I learned that in my service work in prisons. And uh, I started going and participating, of course, in our assemblies. I was a DCM. I became our state corrections chairman. And uh, then I became our state secretary. I love being involved in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Some people call it politics. I've never seen any politics in AA. It was what was necessary for me to grow and learn some emotional lessons that I'd never learned before. It learned, taught me how to accept responsibility. And uh, I had the great opportunity to serve as the Tennessee State Delegate for Panel 44, which was two years ago and last year. And they, they're slow learners in Tennessee. This past year, they elected me as their state chairman, which I'm currently serving. And I do this because of love for the fellowship and because I try to, I'm trying to give back just a little bit of what I've received. You know, in my steps, I found out that when it came time to make amends to people, that a lot of the people I made amends to were not there. They had died and moved away or for some reason it was just better off leaving alone. Sometimes it's the best amends you can make. So in my mind, I, I have made this rationalization that through service work and through carrying this message to people who can't come and get it, that maybe in some way that's making my amends to those people, to those people who passed on and those I'll never see again. At least I hope it, uh, it balances the scales up just a little bit. The greatest benefit I think I've received in, in sobriety and in AA is... Freedom from fear. I walked around with a knot in my gut the size of a hedge apple. Y'all know what a hedge apple is? Well, it's about that big and it's green and it hurts if you get hit in the crotch with it. <laughs> we, used to, we used to have hedge apple fights when I was a kid. And let me tell you, slipping on the bicycle pedal ain't nothing compared to a hedge apple. I ain't right, am I? But fear consumed me. I read in a big book sometime later uh, something I really related to. It talked about incomprehensible fear. And I know what that is. I walked around afraid, not knowing what it was or why. I was just afraid. In the last days of my drinking, I would pull the shades, I would lock the door, I would turn the phone off, and I'd crawl up in my bed with my half a gallon and my gun. And I would sit there and drink at night until I passed out into total oblivion. And just as certain as if somebody said an alarm clock, I'd wake up at 2 o'clock sharp. And I'd be terrified, and I'd have to drink to pass out again. And I'd get up and I'd make it through the next day, and I had me a bottle stashed at work that I could get into. Until I could get off in the afternoon... And really get down to some serious drinking, and I would do this again. And I lived like that day in and day out, totally consumed with a fear that I didn't know the source of. And I think today that that fear was probably being cut cut off from the sunlight of the spirits, the way the big book talks about it. 
and I think that I had lost all total, uh, all contact with a higher power. I had uh, become emotionally and spiritually bankrupt, and the fear was all that was left. I'm grateful that I don't have that today. I'm grateful for the happy, joyous, free life that I've been given. And I I learned a couple of other things that I'll mention. I'm, I'm not going to talk on to where you have to get into another tape over there, but I'm going to be shutting this thing down. But I, I read in the big, big book one time a long time ago, maybe as a child, and I heard it from the preachers, and they talked about hope, faith, and charity. I never did understand that. I didn't know what they were talking about. I thought a charity is something like uh, the Red Cross. Well, I learned in AA that whenever I share with another alcoholic, whether it be one-on-one, whether it be at the tables in my home group, or whether it be speaking, like a speaker meeting tonight, that somewhere, just maybe, there is a person ready for the message that I have to bring. And all I can give that person is hope. That's all I've got. It's through my experience strength to give someone else a little bit of hope. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I continue to do that on a daily basis, and if I do that in the spirit of anonymity, that is, that I do it expecting nothing in return, not even recognition, that's hard for my ego. If I can do that, I know that I will be given a reprieve from my disease. That's my faith. My faith is built on that experience. And the charity comes in again where I give it away, expecting nothing back. I remember talking about that in the, the, the principle of anonymity one night over at the prison. And I offered it to these guys as a challenge. I said, if you really want to know what anonymity is, do something real nice for somebody tomorrow and never tell another living soul about it. It's tough. Tough for this ego, I can tell you. You know, I'll ask God to work miracles in my life and then He'll do them and I won't take credit for it. But you just let something go wrong. I guess it's my just my nature. Some of y'all don't relate to that. Uh, I try to uh, set a good example for my pigeons today through the things that I've learned from you all. You know, I didn't know much when I got here, and I had to learn everything the hard way. I had to learn most of what I know about life by by finally facing some of the pain that was out there instead of killing it with whiskey. And... Uh, I'm reminded of a story about uh, a farmer. There was three farmers sitting at a country store one day at a crossroads down in Alabama. You know, they sell a lot of cotton down there. And there was a cotton gin down the road just a little ways from where they were. And these guys got into an argument about religion. One of them was swearing it was one religion. The other was swearing it was another religion. And they debated heatedly there for a couple of hours. You know, I have one experience. I need to tell you this before I tell that. I did my fifth step one time, or I tried to do fifth step with a priest. And I'm a Southern Baptist. 
And somebody suggested I do this. And he was on this, in this little booth, and I couldn't see his face, but I didn't get through it because once I got started, all I could hear was, no shit. <laughs> just kidding. That's a joke. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he really said, you're kidding. No. Now, but anyway, these guys were arguing about religion. And... Uh, after they had exhausted all possible uh, uh, thought and philosophies, finally they looked up to the store owner and said, Zeke, said, you're a pretty smart man. Now, you've listened to us discuss this, and now in your opinion, what's the, the true religion? And old Zeke said, well, I tell you what. He said, from where we are right now, he said, there's three different ways you can go to get down to the, to the cotton gin. He said, but I really believe once you get down there, the man that runs that thing, he's just going to ask you how good you caught and not how did you get there. And so that's a real good lesson for me, to not be judgmental, to be open-minded and dealing with others. And maybe these are some things that you knew, but I tell you what, I, I was shortchanged with that information when I came along. I had to learn this in sobriety. I feel like an infant. With 12 years sobriety, it took me five years to get my brains out of hock. <laughs> At least. Well, I've taken up enough of y'all time. Y'all got some kind of fling coming. I can't wait to see what it is y'all fling up here. <laughs> it ought to be interesting. And I'm going to take notes and go back. Listen, if y'all down to Tennessee, give us a holler. We'll treat you so many ways you'll like one of them. Thanks for having me. <laughs>